And if we go to church, but we forget to be the church, you will always be disappointed. I promise. I don't care if it's here or some other place down the street. Church will always ultimately be empty if it's just where you go and the building you sit in. No matter how cool the stage or the pastor or the music ever becomes. See, we were intended to be a church centered around a table, a community of people that could strengthen and encourage and love one another when the whole world seems against us. A community of people that could welcome the outcast and the foreigner and the one who's nothing like us. And we're not joined together by affinity and similarities and our ability to like one another, but joined together by Jesus and all that he has done, that he has made no division in the church. And we are one. Hi, this is Chris from The Point a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay because faith is not about having it all figured out and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Good morning. I missed you guys last week. As uh, Vicar Adam shared, I was hiking on the AT. I go every year with a group of about 10 or 12 guys and uh, we do about 60 or 70 miles, usually over the course of five or six days. Uh, this year, though, because of the rain and the hurricane winds expected, we decided to consolidate Friday and Saturday into one day, which meant for the first time in my life on Friday, I did a marathon, 26.2 miles of hiking. Uh, my previous best was the day prior. I did 16 miles of hiking. Um, so if you see my lovely fashion faux pas of sandals and socks, Uh, Don't be too distracted or distraught. This won't be permanent. My feet are just too gross for you to see and too sore to be in shoes. So it's a compromise, all right? With that said, my name is Adam, and it's so good to be here. I've missed you a lot this last week. We are in a series where we as a church are looking at a practice of something Jesus did in his life that you and I can begin to do to find our life more fulfilling and more centered in Him, Uh, something that will help us begin to be more like Him in all that we do and and also to experience the life He has to offer. And this practice is one I'm I'm really enjoying and I really love. It's the practice of eating and drinking. How many of you know that eating and drinking is a good thing? And how many of you enjoy eating and drinking when it's with the right people? Now also, sometimes eating and drinking can be really awkward when it's with people you don't want to eat and drink with, right? So our goal in this practice is to learn how do we begin to experience the simple, everyday habit of eating and drinking in a way that actually connects us with Jesus and serves His church and serves us in serving the world. Well, before we get into Scripture, I want to share a little bit of history with you. How many of you are big history buffs? 
A few of you. Excellent. Well, this might be new history or it might be something you're familiar with, but I need to tell you, church as you know it and I know it today is nothing like church used to be in the past. All right? So here's what happened when Jesus came on the scene and he made these disciples. He said, come and follow me. As he went, he often invited himself over to other people's houses. What boldness I love. He said, I'm coming to your house and you're going to feed me even better. I'm going to try that this week, okay? I'm coming to your house and you're going to feed me. And Jesus, he went going to all these houses of sinners and broken outcasts and people who didn't belong and he ate with them and it made people wildly uncomfortable and Jesus he taught he said this is what it's like in my kingdom those who are far out and disconnected have been invited in and they're welcome here at the table the table was a space reserved for family and friends a really close and intimate thing so you only invited those in who lived and thought and acted like you but Jesus turned that upside down. And the church, as they gathered, if you remember this summer in our series through Acts, the church regularly gathered around a table and they ate a full meal together. Imagine if every Sunday we gathered together and shared a full meal. Like you bring your most gourmet dish and that's going to be our Sunday gathering. Wouldn't that be exciting? And for most of the early church's life, for about 200 years, when Christianity wasn't yet legal, they couldn't gather in large buildings because they couldn't build them without getting persecuted. And so they gathered in what was called house churches. And we often today think these house churches were like 10 or 20 people because that's what we could maybe uncomfortably fit in our living room. But the truth is, these gatherings of house churches were actually a little bit larger. See, the Roman house was structured if you were wealthy enough to have a decent-sized house, which very few people did. But if you had one of these houses, they were structured where in the middle was a large courtyard, and they had some rooms for sleeping on the outside. And they had one large gathering space that would usually hold up to about 150 people. Because when all of your family came in from out of town, when everybody did come to visit, you needed a space where everybody could eat together. And also, in these wealthier houses... There were servants and slaves and a whole community of people who were present just to make the very daily operations of the house possible. And so this large gathering room of about 150 would, would host the church. And we know for the first 200 years of the church, the church gathered in these houses, in these rooms with somewhere between 120 and 150 people, and they ate a meal. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, it describes this meal as the love fest, the agape meal, this meal that was intended for all people of all status, those who are poor and those who are wealthy, to come together and to be equal for a moment. Imagine living in a society where you are broke and hungry and have nothing to your name, but every time you gathered with the church, you knew you would go away full. They would care for you and provide for you. What a wonderful place. And so this is how the church gathered. This, the table, the meal they ate, was the center of their gathering. And in that meal, they would conclude by taking what we now today call communion. They would break bread and share wine like Jesus told them to in remembrance of the things he did. About 200 years into Christianity, 
it began to be less persecuted. It still wasn't legal, but it was less persecuted. So they started building buildings. This started about 200 AD and then really picked up in the mid-300s when Christianity became not only legal, but officially recognized as the Roman religion. And they started building buildings for the church to gather in larger quantities outside of people's homes. But these buildings were still in some way centered around the table. In fact, most old architecture, if you look back at a lot of old church buildings, these buildings looked like a cross from above. And in the middle of that cross was the altar. And there at the altar, the church would continue to gather around that table to eat and drink. But slowly over time, the meal shifted from a whole feast and a banquet to just a little bit of bread and some wine. And then even further now today, we have some wafers and some wine. But we'll get more into communion and this meal in future weeks, all right? Just know that the church changed its architecture to still be centered around the table, but now it was not the table of a large feast together. It was the table of the altar in this place here. A little bit later in history, about the 500s, or 1500s, sorry, so about 1500 years later, uh, the church again had a big shift in the, the architecture of how they designed buildings to what's known as the colonial style of church. Maybe you're familiar with that little country Baptist church that's a giant rectangle, a perfect rectangle, and that's it, right? And this rectangle in many cases is kind of plain. There's not a lot on the windows. That was in large part because people thought if we have images, maybe we're breaking the commandment to not have any graven images, and so they started taking those away, and these buildings became simpler, but ultimately they were designed with one purpose in mind. People don't know the Bible. You see, in the 1500s, printing was only just barely uh, a thing where you could print with the printing press. Most people didn't know how to read, so how do you teach what we believe? Well, that's where you get in these churches, these rectangular styles, and the center of attention is no longer the altar, but the pulpit. The place where the word of God was spoken becomes the center focus in many churches in about the 1500s. And so the church went from being around a big table and a feast where everybody ate to a small table for communion to now a place where the word is proclaimed. And in many cases, these old uh, churches, if you ever get a chance to travel to Europe and see some five, 600-year-old churches, they actually, the pulpit is not up front. It's in the middle of the building. And the reason for that was from the middle of the building, sometimes elevated up a platform, you could speak and the whole room could hear you a little better. And it wasn't so important that you were staring at the pastor because who was the person in that role wasn't the important thing just the words that were being spoken to teach you the Word of God. Well, the church again had a shift to what we now call our modern church. This happened in the late 1800s and early 1900s, largely due to the drive of the entertainment industry and the rise of Hollywood. That spurred this on more than anything else. The church shifted from this rectangular building where the pulpit was the center to a new style of architecture, a style of architecture that was not centered around a large feast or the altar or the pulpit, but now was centered around the theater and the stage. Take a moment to think of churches you've been in. 
How many of them have a stage like the one I'm standing on? And everything points forward to me and all the music is here where you can see. And all the speaking and all the reading and everything is up front. Not unlike if you go to a a Broadway production, you sit back and you watch what happens on the stage. And what's happened with this change in architecture over time is the church that was once thriving and vibrant and filled with energy around a table. Because let's face it, it's hard to eat and drink, especially when wine is involved, in a very somber and sad, passive manner, right? A little bit of food and a little bit of wine and a lot of people lighten up. Let's be honest. But in the theater environment, even our movie theaters, our our theaters for Broadway or, or other plays, even this church environment... The architecture has changed to be a passive. You sit, somebody else performs. Whether that's in the music or the speaking or the reading of the word, sit and watch as opposed to participate. Now, why do I begin with all of this history of the church? This is not a criticism of where we've been. They were each in their season for a good reason. They each came at a time when it was a valuable thing. In fact, think of this stage and this theater-style building and the advantage it might give in, say, the 1900s, 1905, when it was built. If I stood here and took this microphone off and I began to speak with even a moderate voice to project, I can promise wherever you sit, you could hear what I'm saying. See, this theater style was built at a time when they needed to be able to project voices and sound really well. So it's not a bad thing that we have this style. But one of the things that the change in architecture has done to the church collectively in America and the West is with the change of architecture, we've lost the purpose, and the meaning. In fact, many times when we gather, we think to ourselves, our gathering is so that I can get something from this. And that's not selfish. You should be fed by the Word of God whenever you gather. You should encounter the presence of God whenever we're together. God should give you His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness every time we're here. But participation in the life of the church is more than a passive reception. And for most of the history of the church, participation in the life of the church, in the community of church, was something that to simply ask, where do you go to church, would be a completely foreign concept to people. Because going to church was never the goal. But being the church together was the goal. See, as the architecture has changed, We have changed what we think to expect. And we think church is a place that we sometimes participate in or or sit passively and, and learn. But church in Scripture has always been a people. A people centered around a person, the person of Jesus. And everything He said and everything He did, this is for us. And if we go to church, but we forget to be the church, you will always be disappointed. I promise. I don't care if it's here or some other place down the street. Church will always ultimately be empty if it's just where you go and the building you sit in. No matter how cool the stage 
or the pastor or the music ever becomes. See, we were intended to be a church centered around a table, a community of people that could strengthen and encourage and love one another when the whole world seems against us. A community of people that could welcome the outcast and the foreigner and the one who's nothing like us. And we're not joined together by affinity and similarities and our ability to like one another, but joined together by Jesus and all that he has done, that he has made no division in the church. And we are one. Whether you have kids or are single or are married or are divorced, whether you look really, really sinful right now or you're really good at hiding your sin right now, it doesn't really matter. We are one body. One people. And so the church needs to be a church around a table again. I believe that if we become that church again, even as we still gather in this architecture and in this space, if we become the church that is centered around a table with one another on a regular basis, I believe you will see God move in your life like you've never seen before. I'm, I'm willing to bet my job on it. I'm that confident it will change everything for you, for your neighbors, for our city. You see, the church around a table doesn't get to passively sit there and not talk to one another and doesn't get to sit there and ignore the other's burdens and problems and challenges. The church around a table has to, has to care for one another on every level. And that means caring for the people who absolutely drive you nuts and caring for the people who are really, really wildly sinful and look nothing like God. And caring for the people you look to and go, someday I want to be like them. But caring for one another. So now we're going to jump into Scripture and talk about what this life around a table may look like. If you want to join me in Scripture, we're going to begin in John chapter 13. <coughs> Jesus is gathered around a table with his disciples those who are following after him, they've gathered around a table to share an important meal. And Jesus does something in this meal that I think sets an example for you and I when we gather around a table. If you have the blue Bibles in front of you or upstairs along the sides, it's on page 1,123. You're welcome to read along. You can pull out your phone and use that as well. Here we go. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. First and foremost, note this, they're sharing the feast of the Passover, a meal in which they remembered how God had delivered them, a meal that was intended to be shared with the closest, most personal family and friends and only those people. 
And Jesus, knowing what Judas is about to do, still includes Judas. See, it's important to note that the church around the table will not always look pretty, and there will be people at times who are there to hurt you and betray you, and even still, we can gather together. He takes off his outer robe, and he begins to wash their feet. Now, I promise if I took off these socks, even Jesus would pause for a moment before he started washing these feet. But, but for them at the time, they wandered down dirt roads with animals and all kinds of other gross things. Their feet were filthy, and they had a cultural attitude that said, if only your feet are clean, the rest of you will be okay. Just clean your feet before you eat, because they weren't sitting in chairs at a table that was elevated. They would probably be sitting on the floor and on pillows with their feet next to each other. Anybody have a problem with somebody else's feet touching you? What about while you eat, Right? So washing your feet was kind of a big deal, and it was reserved for the lowest of low, the worst of the worst, the, the, the servant among everybody. Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, takes off his outer robe and begins to wash their feet. And you can imagine how offensive this might have been for Peter and John and the others. Jesus wasn't the lowest of low. Surely somebody else should have done this job. Jesus was too good for such a filthy, disgusting, horrible task. In fact, this is how Peter replies. He, that is Jesus, came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Look at the holy righteousness in Peter. Jesus, you are too good and too important. I will never demean you in such a horrible way. I won't allow you to think so little of yourself that you wash my feet. Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it. And he goes on, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? Like if Jesus goes that far and says, you can have no part of who I am if you don't let me wash your feet. Peter's like, then by all means, what else do you want to wash? Keep going. And Jesus, he says this, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. 
Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus, he responds after washing their feet. He says, don't you know what I've done? If I'm your teacher and your Lord and I'm going to humble myself like this, you should also. See, if the church is a church around a table, I don't think we have to wash each other's feet every time we show up. Because we have a very different culture and a thing called shoes today, so that's not necessarily our issue. But Jesus took the posture not of the one who was deserving honor and respect, but of the one who was giving it. Who was laying everything down to humble himself to become less than the rest, even those who would betray him. And he says, you should do likewise. For us to be the church around a table is to recognize that when we gather together, whether we gather here on Sunday morning or in your house during the week or somebody else's house or at a restaurant, when we gather as the body of Christ, we each take the posture of humility. It says, it's not about me. It's not about what I want, what I need, what I like. It's not about my comfort. It's about each other. Becoming less than one another that ultimately he might be made more. Jesus says, this is what it's like to follow me. Now we're going to flip forward to Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 12 is on page 1183 if you're following along. In this chapter, Paul, so far throughout the book of Romans, he has described what we believe as far as how we are saved. He's described all that God has done, that Jesus laid his life down that we might live. He describes everything God has given up that we can be saved, not by our own works, but by faith. And then he gives this riveting challenge. Here's then how you should live. Here's what you should do because of what he's done. Not to gain his favor, not to get his love, simply as one who is loved. Live like this. This is what he says, Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Real quick, it's really easy to not love the people you go to church with. Did you know that? Like, I don't know if you know this. Look to the left and look to the right. The person sitting next to you is a sinner. So are you. And it's really easy to see all the things they do and all the ways they act that absolutely drive you nuts. And it's easy to come and sit and leave and ignore the person you don't want to love. It's easy for all of us. Paul says, look, if Jesus is the center of your life, if this gift he's given is for you, let your love be genuine. Which means be honest when you're struggling. I'm struggling to love you right now. Will you forgive me? Let your love be genuine that you can look at all of their brokenness and their wounds and their hurts and you can mourn with them and hurt with them, not for them. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. See, if the church becomes a church around a table, 
and we take that posture of Jesus of surrendering ourselves and being willing to do whatever the lowest thing is when we're together, that we can build one another up. He says that your love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Seek to outdo one another in showing honor. Imagine if that was our attitude every time we gather either on Sunday morning or through the week, every time we're together, we said, how can I honor you more? What would that look like in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families? How might our lives be transformed if that was our attitude before us? God, I'll lay everything down that I can honor you more. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. See, this is what the life of the Christian looks like. Jesus has given everything for you and me. He's laid it all down even for Judas who would betray Him. For Peter who would deny Him. For you and I, He's given everything. And He invites us to not be a church that passively sits and watches and receives, but a church that participates together in the hardships and the trials and the difficulties. A church that gathers together to share a meal to say, I can't do this without you in my life. I don't know that we're there. But I imagine there could be a day when we one day are. I've talked with a few of you who've been a part of the Thursday Night Ladies Bible study that's happened for years. And I've heard repeatedly this, this group of women has been a source of encouragement. And several have said, if I didn't have them in my life, I, I don't know what life would look like at all. What if every one of us was so involved sitting around a meal, eating with others so often, consistently and regularly, that we knew exactly who to turn to when life got hard and who to celebrate with when life went really well and who to cry with when we didn't know where else to turn. And we knew exactly that life was made to be together. What if that's what we had, every one of us? See, the the problem with our architecture of the church is it lends itself to ignoring that. It's really easy to come and sit and leave. But it's really hard to open up your heart and say, how do I learn to love this person sitting next to me? And the best way you and I can do this is by regularly sharing a meal with somebody else who's Christian. Regularly. I would recommend weekly, if possible daily. Maybe you live by yourself and you're like, I just don't know how to do this. My life is really difficult. You know, maybe as a single person, this is actually exactly the thing you need. You're like, I want to get married, but in between now and then, maybe you just need people you can eat with regularly who will love you, whether they're single or married or have kids or don't. And maybe if you're married, I don't know if you know this, but loneliness is rampant in America. In our marriages, with families, things are falling apart. And I think the reason families in America are falling apart is because we don't eat together. 
In fact, I was watching a commercial yesterday that was all about uh, like mindfulness and de-stressing. And this commercial was this really tense moment at dinner with this lady and apparently her two parents. And then she like escapes to this mindfulness app and now everything's better. And my mom was like, I don't get that commercial. Why would they portray the family as a bad thing? And I said, because for a lot of people it is. Family is tense and stressful and you don't understand will they love me or will they not. For many people, it doesn't feel safe. And I think part of why family doesn't always feel safe is because for decades we've not eaten together. Do you know that one in five American meals is eaten in a car? Less than 17% of all Americans admit to eating a meal together as a family once or more a week. That's it. And the average length of that meal together as a family lasts 12 minutes. So we, on average, collectively spend 12 minutes a week with our family eating. What if you tried this experiment for just one week? This week, you're going to sit down and you're going to spend one hour sitting at the table eating. Turn off the TV and the phone and all the other distractions. How awkward would it be to have to talk to your family for an hour? How miserable would it be? I imagine the first time you do it, it's going to be really, really tough. And afterwards, you go, that was kind of nice. And the second time you do it, it'll be a little bit easier. And eventually, you'll get to the place where you look forward to eating because you know it comes with people who love you. When it comes to this Christian hospitality and this eating and drinking, I believe that you and I have an opportunity before us to completely change our life and the lives of those around us. See, I know a lot of people are married and lonely and are single and lonely. And the church in this passive environment for the last hundred plus years has said your solution to that problem is to find more people who are like you. But misery loves company. So the more you're lonely, the more you're probably just going to find lonely people who want to be lonely together. And did you know you can be lonely in a whole crowd of people? I think the solution to loneliness is not just more people, but better people. And by that, I don't mean people who are less sinful, but people who you pour more of yourself into to get to know on a deeper level, where you can know their hurts and their fears and their pains. And so this week, as our practice, what I want to encourage you to do is take some time this week, find one Christian that you look up to and put it on your calendar to have dinner with them. If you're single, maybe it's a married couple. Let me tell you, as a, a dad with three kids, I love it when somebody who's single, who likes kids, comes over and wants to play with my kids. It's refreshing. Like, you can come over anytime. I will feed you every time if it means you're going to play with my kids or talk to me like an adult so I don't have to just talk with kids, okay? And, and if you're married, find somebody who's single, or find somebody who's been married for 50 years, and you're like, I have nothing in common with those boomers. That's okay. You can love them too. Did you know that? And they can love you. And invite them over to your house to share a meal. That's it. I think if we start doing that just a little bit at a time, I think what it's going to end up doing in the long run 
is giving us a whole host of people we can rely on when things are tough. People who love us dearly and who we love dearly as well. And some of you are weird to me because you're introverted. And I only understand introverts because I'm married to my wife. All right? I'm an extrovert. I want to be around people 24-7 and Part of what I don't like about hiking on the AT every year is I'm slower than most of the guys. So inevitably, I spend hours alone on the trail until I catch up to them long enough for them to say, hang in there, and then they keep going. And that time alone is hard for me. But for those of you who are introverts and you're hearing me talk about eating with other people, you're like, I have to spend time with people? Take a deep breath. It'll be okay. I was talking to my wife yesterday. You see, we've been talking about these practices now for about four years. And I said, did you notice the reason why we went in this order of practices? And she said, no. I said, well, we started with Sabbath. Sabbath as a practice is learning to say no and to rest. As introverts, let me give you permission. If eating with people sounds scary, go back and watch the Sabbath practice and learn to rest regularly. It's a lot easier to eat with people when you're rested, I promise. And then we went from, from Sabbath, we went into silence and solitude. You see, when we can say no and learn to rest and give ourselves permission to do that, we begin to say, let me spend time each day with the Lord. And from that place, I have something to give others. Only after he's poured into me can I pour out. And then we went into simplicity, right? Let's slow down our life and simplify our schedule and our budgets that there is even margin to begin to eat and drink with people. And now we eat and drink. See, these practices we're learning, they're not just a fun one-time thing. When we learn to begin to walk in them each and every day, sometimes really well and sometimes not so well, that's okay. We walk them out. We learn how to follow Jesus like his disciples did. And we learn that eating and drinking can be the most rewarding thing we've ever done if we do it with people who love us? What if 2022 was the year that the church was no longer in a theater, but sitting in homes, centered around a table, loving one another with brotherly affection? That's my hope and prayer. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you today. You washed your disciples' feet. You humbled yourself to give everything to us. It is difficult and countercultural and uncomfortable to eat with sinners and betrayers and maybe even just people we don't like. But God, when we eat and drink as a family together, either in our homes or as Christians, one another together, God, when we do this, you change our hearts and our minds and our lives. Create in us a community that loves genuinely, that seeks to outdo one another in showing honor, that is willing to humble ourselves for the sake of each other. God, may we learn to share a meal as you did that our lives would be centered not in the passive watching, but in the active participating in all the good that you have given to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Every week when we gather, part of our worship is we collect an offering. We believe in this place that an offering is an opportunity to join God in the work that He's doing. It's not obligatory. It's not something He requires. He simply invites you to participate in what He's doing, not only in this place, but more importantly, through us as a people in our community. So if you came prepared to give today and you prefer to give with cash or check, or if you filled out one of those physical connect cards with a way we can be praying with you and for you, there's a popcorn bucket in the back corner. And as you go, you can place that physical cash or check or connect card in the popcorn bucket. If you're somebody who prefers to give electronically, you can do so at thepointknocks.com by clicking the little teal button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now, every week we invite your questions, and I do my best to respond. So what questions came in today? Well, starting off, we have someone that asked the question, what happens to those who do not accept Jesus by the time he returns? Hmm. There's this weird conundrum that you and I live in, that God is the giver of faith, and he's given us the responsibility to tell people about him. And so we are not his plan B or C or, or D, we are plan A. So if we don't do our jobs telling people about him, that's on us. And at the same time, somehow he works mysteriously anyway. And so what happens to those who haven't yet come to believe in his goodness and his grace and all that he has done by the time he returns? Well, scripture's really unpleasant about that. You see, God isn't going to be angry and mean and force us to do something we don't want to do. And so we're not going to be forced to spend eternity with him if we don't want eternity with him. And so when he returns at that point, those who have said, I want to do it my own way, I trust my own strength, I don't need to surrender it to God, I can handle this, he will let them try to handle it. And that is what the Bible describes as hell. Because we cannot handle our mess and our sin and our brokenness on our own. So my encouragement, if you know somebody who doesn't know the Lord, invite them over for dinner and simply love them. Like, you don't need to awkwardly have that conversation. Not yet. Just start by a meal, a lot of meals, and just see what happens. And maybe there'll come a day when you can share, here's why I believe in this good Jesus. And maybe that day sooner than later, but start with a meal with somebody who doesn't know how much they're loved. Yeah. The next question is someone says that they really love your footwear. Thank so you. Thank you. They're probably lying, but... <laughs> These were my camp shoes that I would wear after the boots, and I didn't think I'd be wearing them after the boots for a few days. I just thought in the evening. You committed, so. though. You committed. It's almost like barefoot, just with socks, which is weird. Someone else also said, we missed you too, and don't worry about the sock-sandal combo. You totally pull it off. Come as you are, even like this, all right? There we go, yeah. there we go. The next question is, is the bonfire a potluck? Yeah, we're going to provide hot dogs and I think some drinks, but if you want to bring a side dish or something to share, um, nobody will be mad about extra food, okay? So show up without food if you don't have food to make or you're like, I don't know how to make food or where to buy food, just come and eat and enjoy. Or if you're somebody who likes to cook or likes to buy things at uh, Kroger on your way to a potluck, Feel free to pick something up then, too, and bring it as well. We're going to have hot dogs available Friday. Yum. Someone else asked, what is the Thursday night ladies' night? So we have had connect groups or small groups for years. Uh, only recently have we shifted them to be geographically located. Uh, it, 
if you're in a connect group right now, let me just tell you this practice of eating with Christians is really easy because just going to your connect group this week, you'll check the box. You'll have done it and see how it goes, okay? Um, but we know that not everybody's in a connect group. And before we switched to putting people with uh, their neighbors who live near them, we did them by affinity. So we used to have a men's group and a women's group and a married group and a single group and all those things. And, and really the women's group and I think a Tuesday morning men's group are the only ones that survived and are still kind of going on. Um, so the Thursday group meets Thursday nights at various restaurants around town. They always have a meal, which is great. Um, they have like a conversation via text thread. I don't know. I'm not, I've never been invited to the women's group. I'm not sure why. Um, but if you want to learn more or be a part of that, um, I can point you to several people who've been a part of it in the past or are still a part of it, like Emily or Chrissy, who's running sound, or Anna, who's running pro presenter, or Melissa, who's running lights. If you notice a theme, right? Once you start to get to know your church community, it's really, really delightful to serve alongside them. Um, so that would be my, my long answer. There you go. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> There's only two questions left, and they're both statements. The first one is some cheese dip and a beer, and you'll have Pastor Adam in your hand. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. You're probably not wrong. <laughs> this congregation knows you well. <laughs> um, and then the last question is just a comment. Someone said, I almost didn't come today, but I'm really glad I did. We're glad you did too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what you're going through that you almost didn't come today, but we love you, and we're glad you're here. Um, there was a question that was asked earlier in our like devotion time, but wasn't texted in, so I'll also respond yeah. to that. Uh, someone asked earlier the question, why did Judas hang himself? Uh, and here's a really, I don't know if this is theologically sound or not, so this is my perspective. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew portrays Judas and Peter exactly the same. Did you know that? Like, we think of Judas as this really terrible, horrible man. And what we see in the Gospel of Matthew is that Judas actually sees what he did as wrong, and he goes back to the priests seeking forgiveness. And he returns the money, says, what I did was wrong, this man was innocent. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the priest had one primary job, And their primary job was to forgive the sins of sinners. So Judas comes back seeking forgiveness to the one place he knows to find it, where he's supposed to find it every time. And they say to him, what is that to us? And they just leave him in that place of hurt and pain and unforgiveness. And so I think the non-theological part, my perspective... I think the reason Judas hung himself was because when we live in a place of unforgiveness and don't know where to turn, life is really, really dark. And there's not much reason to keep living. And yet, I also believe that Jesus, had Judas not hung himself, would have forgiven Judas too. So if you're in that place seeking forgiveness and in despair for where you've been, let me tell you this clearly You are loved and you are forgiven. And if you've ever contemplated suicide or if you're in that place as well, please, please speak up. There is no shame in the things you've thought and no shame in the place you've been. Let us be a light into your darkness, okay? That's that's the answer. Uh, Anything else? Nope, that was it. Awesome. Well, as always, receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. God bless you all. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.